In this episode, special guest Lee Brasington, Buddhist meditation teacher and author of Right Concentration, A Practical Guide to the Jhanas, joins the ongoing conversation between Shinzen Young, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center for Consciousness Studies and research professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, Lee shares his work with Jhana meditation and neuroscience, summarizing his 2013 paper, Case Study of Ecstatic Meditation, and showing his brain scans in profound states of samadhi. Dr. Sanguinetti offers his own interpretation of these scans, and Chelsea asks why states of nothingness are reported by mystics as so much more satisfying than the mundane pleasures associated with the reward systems of the brain. Listen in as Shinzen and Lee, old friends with decades of elite-level meditation experience, engage in a far-reaching discussion of samadhi, the nature of spiritual insight, deathlessness versus immortality, bliss and the cosmic lila, and what foundational math debates about set versus category have to say about Buddhist notions of Paticca Samuppada. Hey Lee, <laughs> it's right. been so long, oh my God. It has, it's been too long. Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, and special guest Lee Brasington, welcome to the podcast. As listeners will no doubt be aware, this is now the seventh installment of a very popular series that's been happening on the Guru Viking podcast, featuring conversation between Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Sanguinetti, doing early science, as Shinzen has said, exploring a wide range of topics from the front lines of contemplative neuroscience. In the last of these conversations, episode 103, actually, the discussion landed on the 2013 paper, Case Study of Ecstatic Meditation, FMRI and EEG, Evidence of Self-Stimulating a Reward System, published in the journal Neuroplasticity. In fact, Lee was a co-author on that paper and has graciously agreed to appear today to discuss that work. And as the discussion unfolds, I'm sure we'll get into all kinds of other interesting territory. So, Lee, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Um, perhaps to start, could you talk a little bit about that paper, your role in that, and your general work uh, around its themes? Oh, thank you. I am so happy to be part of this podcast. I've been looking forward to it ever since I got your email. It's really great. So... My interest in the jhanas and neuroscience goes back to, well, when I first started experiencing the jhanas. I wanted to know, all right, what's going on in the brain? Uh, they're altered states and something's going on up there. The first retreat I ever taught was at Cloud Mountain in Southern Washington State. And I was to give a talk in Seattle after that and I got a ride with one of the students back to Seattle who was an MD. And amongst our very interesting conversations on the way up, I mentioned that I was interested in what's going on in my brain, the neuroscience of the jhanas. And he says, I have friends at the University of Washington. I'll see what I can do. Well, the next thing I knew, I was hooked up to 128 lead EEG and three guys in the next room are watching me meditate talk about performance anxiety, but it, it, was, it was very interesting. We had it hooked up so that I could had a little clicker 
I would click once to say I had arrived at a jhana. I click twice to say I'm going to the high, next higher number and click three times to say I was going to the next lower number. And then I ran up the jhanas and ran back down. And I told them, yeah, uh, the clicks would show up in the, in the recording. So that was nice. And I told them sometimes I might click more than once. That's because it got more stable. Uh, I fell out of it. I got back in, something like that. And I also told them when I click once, don't start taking that data immediately. I need to stabilize it. The clicking actually messed it up. And when we got done, the first thing the EEG lab guy said, he was amazed at the amount of synchronicity between the hemispheres of my brain. It was like something was going on. I did several EEG runs. The rest of them were 256 leads. And I did some fMRI runs. And then a few years later, Mike Haggerty, who is a retired neuroscientist from uh, UC Davis in California, contacted me. We did some EEG runs with a friend of his. And I mentioned that there was all this data sitting around and he asked, could he get it? And so he pulled in the data we had done here in the San Francisco Bay Area and the data from Washington State and the paper is the result of it. Now asking me to talk about the paper is sort of like asking the lab rat what it was like to run through the maze. I mean, I was just, I was just meditating. A couple things I would say about it Meditating with EEG is not going to get you your best meditation. Uh, it's, it's a little distracting. Meditating in an fMRI, well, if you meditate easily in a metal tube with somebody pounding on the outside of it with a hammer, yeah, it's, it's definitely not the best. But we got data and uh, we have pictures and there's actually a picture of my brain on jhanas that hopefully Steve can put up as a share. There we go. So those of you that are watching this can see this. This is a difference map. The blue areas are the parts of my brain that got quieter in going from rest to the second jhana. And the red and orange areas are the parts of my brain that got busier between rest and second jhana. And one of the things, you'll notice the one that's looking at the top, this would be the lower left. It's the top part of that, the front of my brain. On the left, there's more activity. And on the right, it's still, you know, kind of quiet. Some things are calming down. From my understanding that positive emotional states show more activity in the left prefrontal cortex and the jhanas are definitely positive emotional states. I've seen this in other recordings of my brain as well. And it's the same for each of the first four jhanas, even though the fourth jhana is a state of equanimity, it still shows positive activity. Subjectively, it's neutral, but brain activity, it's more positive than rest. 
The other part that was interesting is the center of my brain, which I think represents the nucleus accumbens, the reward center. One thing that Mike Haggerty told me was that in second jhana, my reward center was on overdrive. So yeah, being in second jhana is very rewarding. And this is one of the things that led to my speculation about what's going on with these altered states of consciousness. Clearly the reward center is involved and I found out the nucleus accumbens either is receiving dopamine or producing dopamine. And dopamine breaks down into norepinephrine and the symptoms of a big dose of norepinephrine are similar to the primary constituent of the first jhana, which is called piti. We could translate it as glee or rapture. And the reward center also generates opioids, which make you happy. And that's the primary constituent of the second jhana. So yeah, this, for what little I know about neuroscience, uh, this picture seems to, to fit that and fit my subjective experience. So what they found was that I was able without any external input, able to, yeah, make myself happy, happy enough that they could actually see it. And that we, I've done more runs since then. We have some data uh, that shows each of the jhanas. The pattern is different for each jhana. There was one run that I did, it went up through the jhanas from one to eight and back down. And jhana three looked the same going up and coming down, which, yeah, that was kind of nice to know. I wasn't fooling myself there. And jhana three looked different from jhana two and jhana four. Each, each of the jhanas had their own signature. Um, I don't know what else I could say about the paper. I'm sure there are probably some questions that some of you might have, so fire away. Thanks for that, Lee, that is super fascinating. Um, I, just a quick question, if you could give a very simple or broad intro to jhanas for anybody out there who's, who's not familiar, maybe some of my research colleagues might not be too familiar with it. And you said jhana one and two, how many are there, or how many did you study in this, in this paper? So there are eight altered states of consciousness that are brought on by concentration and each results in more concentration. So you need a certain amount of concentration to get to the first one. This goes by the name of access concentration, enough concentration to give you access to the first state. The concentration generated by being in the first state gives you enough to get to the second state, which gives you enough to get to the third state. So you're stair-stepping your way down into deeper and deeper levels of concentration. Actually, concentration is a translation of the Pali word samadhi. And I would actually want to translate it as indistractability. Concentration has this furrowed brow connotation and really it's about being able to put your mind on something and not become distracted. 
which is quite useful because when you exit these states, then your meditation takes on a different character where you're investigating reality. And because of, of the one-pointed focus that's being generated in these states, your normal ego functioning has been quieted. You can't enter these states with your ego running loose and it just gets really quiet. So when you come out, you're actually in a less egocentric state with an indistractable mind, which is turns out as a really good way to be if you're investigating reality. So the first of these states is, we could call it a rapturous or gleeful state, a lot of physical energy. Uh, there's so much physical energy, there's a lot of muscle tension, which completely messes up EEG studies because yeah, muscle tension is what you get rather than what's going on in the brain. It also makes it hard to look at it with fMRI because you can't move your head with fMRI. And if I do a really good first job, I'm sort of twitching and that moves my head. Uh, second jhana calms down to more happiness, joy. Uh, sukha is the Pali word to describe it. And you're just sitting there being happy for no reason. You have self-stimulated happiness and you're just enjoying that. Third jhana, you calm it down to contentment and all of the physical aspect is gone. It's a very still place. There were remnants of the glee, just sort of a little bit in the background in jhana number two. Jhana number three, that's completely gone and things have calmed down even more to the state of contentment, satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger were practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. And the fourth jhana is a state that's completely neutral. Um, I would say focus on quiet stillness. It's a very equanimous state. And so when you, by the time you get there, you, your mind is definitely quite altered from what it was when you sat down. It describes it as a state where mindfulness is fully purified by equanimity. And I would define mindfulness. If you're being mindful, you are paying attention to what's happening in the here and now. Ramdas Ram Das was right, be here now. And so that's what we're after. Investigate while you're being here now. And then the, the, next, the next four jhanas, little hard to describe. Their names are the realm of infinite consciousness, the realm of infinite, uh, realm of infinite space, the realm of infinite consciousness, the realm of nothingness, and the realm of neither perception or non-perception. They're, well, they're like visualizations. The jhanas are in increasing order of subtlety. As you step up through the numbers, the objects get more and more subtle. And that's why you need the previous jhana to get concentrated enough for the next jhana and why when you come out of the higher numbered ones, your mind is so well concentrated. So that maybe that's a, enough of a background on the jhanas. Yeah, that was great. Thank you uh, so much. So, you know, I was trying to sort of get a sense of the phenomenology to make a visual sense of the image that you're showing of your brain. And it sounds like there's a high concentration. So your visual, auditory, body, attention, 
all the attention is focused on something um, which seems to be internal. And one thing I see from the image um, is that your right uh, parietal cortex is very active. It's red, uh, which is suggestive of concentration or attention. Um, but really what strikes my eye when I look at this image is all the blue. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of interested in the activation, and I think you did a good job of describing how the activation might relate to the rewarding or ecstatic states that you experience on jhana. Uh, but all the blue pops out when you look at this image. Um, and for people who can't see it, it's predominantly lots of blue, which means less activation relative to a baseline scan. Um, and that is what you also see on other types of highly altered states. Um, for example, psychedelic studies are becoming very popular where people take uh, magic mushrooms or LSD in the scanner. And you tend to see if you're looking at the bold or the brain activation in MRI, you tend to see uh, a massive decrease in that bold signal, uh, but a massive increase in the synchrony um, between some of those regions, uh, very locally. And then uh, you tend to see decreases in long-term communication across the brain. So there's a bit of what we might call decoupling of brain systems. And um, it's hard to tell just from looking at your fMRI picture here, because we're just looking at activation and deactivation. Um, but really that deactivation or that blue is sticking out to me. And so I wonder, you know, what is, I wonder if some of that deactivation is actually leading to a release, um, which is ultimately leading to this ecstasy or, you know, positive reinforcement that you're talking about. Yeah, so so the first jhana, the, the way I describe it, the entry into it to my students is, all right, you've got to generate this baseline of concentration to get there, this so-called access concentration. And that would be defined as being fully with the object of meditation, such as the breath. And if there are any thoughts, they're wispy and in the background and not pulling you into distraction. So yeah, you sit down and you get distracted and you come back and you get distracted and you come back and you do that for quite a while until it settles, which may take, well, it varies a lot. Some people may take an hour. Some people, maybe they get there in 10 minutes. On a retreat, of course, you get there faster. So once you've gotten to that, stay there for a while and let the concentration deepen and then shift your attention to a pleasant sensation, preferably a pleasant physical sensation. By the time you get to access concentration, if you smile when you meditate, I mean, you might notice that all the Buddha statues have this little wispy smile. It's not just for artistic purposes, it's actually instruction. Smile when you meditate, and by the time you get to access, it's a genuine smile. And you can shift your attention to the pleasantness of the smile that works well for people who can smile when they meditate. The most common place people find a pleasant sensation is in the hands. Other places, third eye, top of the head, soles of the feet, you name a body part, somebody's found pleasant there. And we're able to focus on it. And what I suspect is going on, at least from a subjective point of view, what I experience is I focus on the pleasure and that's pleasant which added a little more pleasure. 
Well, adding a little more pleasure, that's pleasant, which adds a little more pleasure. We're starting a positive feedback loop. So rather than holding a microphone up to a speaker and getting noise, you're holding your attention up to pleasure and getting a positive feedback loop of pleasure. And this is what sets up the eruption of PT, the glee, the rapture, and the sukha. My subjective experience is that the PT comes up and it brings the sukha, the happiness with it. That's first jhana. Second jhana, you calm the glee, the physical aspect, and you're focused on the sukha, right? And then, so now you're not doing feedback loop anymore. You're just, you're stabilizing on enjoying this happiness. Third jhana, turn off the, uh, the, the physical part and then just focus on the contentment. And fourth jhana, turn off the pleasure and just focus on the quiet. So I'm guessing it's a, setting up a positive feedback loop is what's triggering the jhana. But yeah, it's hard to measure the first jhana because of yeah, muscle tension when it arrives. Fascinating. And I also, when I looked at the, the picture, I had similar thoughts to, to Jay, which is that a lot of the deactivation stuck out to me a lot um, more almost than the activation, which is, as we covered last time, one of the arguments of the authors that uh, simply measuring reward uh, circuitry or any type of pleasure we can measure in the brain isn't really enough. We have to look at the entire picture of what's happening in the brain and think about how these things are coming together to create a subjective experience. And their argument or idea is that the deactivation could be causing the activation to be perceived as subjectively more intense. So in that picture, one of the things that was pretty quiet was actually the whole top midline part of your brain, which is what mostly corresponds to anything that would be called the ego or the self, right? All the way from the narratives we have about ourselves to our perception of our self uh, as located in the body. Um, and to Shinzen's point, when those go offline, our sense of time and space sort of collapses. And our and that's a lot less sort of noise, if you will, that would be competing with the pleasure to take up space subjectively. So whatever may be going on in the pleasure realms is going to subjectively seem much more intense than if your you know, ego was online, which I always think that's kind of a funny word because it was invented by Freud and I'm not quite so sure what... Um, if if any relationship it has to Eastern spiritual traditions, I think you you uh, I'd love to hear Shinzen's thoughts on that. But point being, the self and its activity being offline is going to have a huge effect on the subjective pleasure experience. That of course might be another way to think about the positive feedback loop. What is that positive feedback loop? There may be actually components within it and the um, selective attention would increase fulfillment, let's say, <clears throat> and perhaps intensity. Uh, but the selective uh, attention, um, let's see, I think there could be um, there might be other dimensions 
that the selective attention is um, working on. And the fact that so much is turned off um, is allowing for, yes, flexibility and concentration. You can place your attention how you wish, and it tends not to move. Uh, the, you, like, you said you'd like to uh, replace concentration with not, uh, indistractability. Did I hear that right? Yes, indistractability is, I think, the best way to translate samadhi. I, I love that. Um, it was a conclusion that I came to actually fairly early on in my practice. I'm not learning how to focus on this. I'm learning how to place my attention and let go of all the forces of the universe that take me away from this. And at first I thought that this had to be spatially small, like the breath, the belly or here, or a small visual light, you know, a disc of light, the classic stuff we all worked with. But then I realized that this could be anything. It could be large uh, and even dynamic, but your attention is resting there and it stays there because you've released the coupling to the forces that would take you elsewhere. So the, what occurred to me is how nice a parallel that uh, uh, represents with um, the laws of Newton. First law of, of motion of, in the physical world may be a first law of motion in the subjective world. Uh, if there's no forces acting, you just stay. And if then he breaks it out and, you know, uh, you'll be still or you'll be in um, uh, inertial motion. Uh, you know, there won't be uh, any uh, accelerations. Uh, uh, so once again, you can have either in a static sense or in a dynamic sense, a notion of attention is resting here and nothing is taking it away, so it stays there. So it just reminded me of Newton's laws and uh, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, I had never thought about it in terms of Newton's laws, but yeah, it fits exactly. It's very good. If people My, don't know, Lee does have a science background. Yes. Uh, which is part of the, the whole chemistry here. But you're, you're, you were computer engineering? What, what was your... Yeah. yeah. So I started in physics in college. Mm. And then I started taking higher level math. And that was just more interesting. And it didn't have labs. I don't do reality really well. So I like the, you know, the straight math stuff. And so I, that's where I wound up. But, you know, doing high level math proofs is exactly the same mental activity as doing writing a computer program. Your computer program is just like a proof. You can't leave anything that, you know, 
is a hole in the, the thing or the, the program crashes. So I got a job as a computer programmer and that's what I did for 35 years. And, but I've, my interest in science has never waned. Um, for entertainment during COVID, yeah, I watch YouTube videos on math and science. And Okay, I just got to ask, man, any particular directions in math uh, attract you? Geometry, um, analysis, topology, uh, abstract algebra, more foundation. operational stuff? Foundations of math. Come logic. on. Yeah. Come down to the on. basic. My, my most favorite thing in all of math is Goidel's theorem. Goidel's theorem basically says that no, how good a job you do making up an arithmetic. I mean, everybody's realizes we made up arithmetic. You know, numbers are made up. You, you were never walking down the street and saw a two lying there. You might see two $1 bills lying there or something, but you know, the, the numbers, we made it up and the arithmetic, we made it up and it works. But no matter how good a job you do making up an arithmetic, it's either going to be inconsistent or incomplete. If it's inconsistent, then you can prove that things are, you can prove, you can prove anything are true. You can prove anything. And if you do that, you prove anything. So hopefully it's just incomplete, which means they're gonna be things that are true, but you can't prove they're true. Now, arithmetic is one of the more simpler things in the universe. So if we can't prove arithmetic, if, if we can't get a deep enough understanding of arithmetic such that we can prove everything that's provable, that's true, um, then, yeah, what does this say about reality? We're, we're a little bit hamstrung at trying to understand what's going on. And then when you think about reality and, you know, we see a very limited amount of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. Our hearing is, well, not picking up all the vibrations that are going on. Yeah, we're limited in what we can take in and then our ability to interpret it accurately. I mean, really all there is is the entire universe and any attempt to describe pieces of the universe leaves out the rest of the universe. So we're hamstrung in just the same way. Uh, so yeah. So you like foundations. Yeah. Uh, okay. So have you ever looked into categorical foundations for mathematics that is using the notion of category as fundamental, uh, replacing the notion of set uh, uh, as fundamental as set would seem to be. There are, uh, there is a community of mathematicians uh, and scientists broadly who believe um, there's a far more fundamental uh, uh, thing to look to than the notion of membership versus non-membership in a set as fundamental as that may seem. Um, what's more fundamental 
than even that um, is the notion of um, uh, infinity categories, uh, 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 structures called categories that are in a hierarchy. There's a zero category, a one category. Now, mostly you work with one categories, uh, <clears throat> but it goes to higher dimension if you need to. And the one categories, well, let me just say this. There are a couple dozen flavors of set theory. As you know, most scientists use ZFC. Cermelo uh, 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 Frankel set theory with the axiom of choice. So that's the common flavor of set theory, but there's lots and lots of flavors of set theory. Um, and you know about that, and that's part of the fascination of the foundations of math. But let me just say this. All those flavors of set theory are just different instances of a deeper structure called an elementary topos. That deeper structure is a simple version of the general structure called a topos. Uh, a topos is a kind of first dimensional category, meaning set theory is a special case of a special case of a special case of a special case of a vision that just knocks you over. And the fundamental notion here is not elements in a set. The fundamental notion is connectivity. Praticca samutpada, this being that is relationship. That's the fundamental. And that's a if we replace set theory with category theory, suddenly all of math looks very different. And therefore, I'm going to say in some way, we have to look again at all of physical science. So if you, if you haven't looked into this direction of math yet, I'm going to invite you, and if you want some suggestions, we can talk offline, et cetera. All right. Yes, I've looked at it a tiny bit. I'm, I'm not conversant in it, but I've looked at it and it was like, oh, this is interesting. But, what it reminds me of is what I consider to be the most profound of the Buddhist discourses. This is found in Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, in Book 12, which is on dependent origination, Paticca Samapada. And this is number 15, the Kachanagota Sutta. And Kachanagota comes and wants to know what's right view. And the Buddha says, this world for the most part depends upon a duality upon the notion of it is and the notion of it is not. In other words, set theory, it belongs to the set of existence or it doesn't belong to the set of existence. And then it goes on and he, the Buddha says, everything exists, this is one extreme, nothing exists, this is the opposite extreme. A Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. 
this arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. In other words, paticca samapada. And yeah, that's to me the most profound thing in all of the suttas. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the relationships that are the most interesting thing. Going back to looking at my brain and what's shutting down, uh, one of the things that's shutting down is the default mode network. This is what comes online when you got nothing else to do. It's like, all right, nothing else to do. Let's, let's build up the ego and plan or worry or whatever. Think about the past, think about the future. I've done some of these neuroscience studies with Judd Brewer, who you all might be familiar with. And Judd has done an extensive number of tests with people basically trying to get to access concentration getting there via different methods. And what he finds is really common is the default mode network gets quiet. And of course, the default mode network ties together brain regions associated with the sense of self. So yeah, we're shutting down the things that make, make us feel like there's somebody here. And that leaves us room for other things. My teacher Ayakima used to say, you're not putting those jhanas in there. They're already in there. All you need to do is stop messing them up, start, stop covering them up. So uh, it's, it's quite fascinating how all this fits together. Uh, yeah, get quiet, let your natural state of mind shine forth. Turns out to be really happy. This is what the Buddha says, awakening is when you're fully awakened. It's, it's a happy state. Uh, all we gotta do is stop covering it up. Uh, <clears throat> Lee, uh, are you aware that we are uh, modulating the default mode network with low intensity focus ultrasound? That's the main uh, research at our lab right now. Uh, so it links very much with Judd's ideas and, uh, and so right. forth. My introduction to Jay was watching that video of the two of you doing exactly that. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, my reaction was, wow, that's really interesting. And I'm quite happy to have them look at my brain, but I don't really want them tampering with my brain. <laughs> But yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing. And this will be especially helpful for people that are having difficult mental states, such as PTSD and things like that, which makes it really difficult to learn to meditate because one, so at the start of every retreat I teach, I warn the students that if you have any unresolved psychological issues, start fooling with concentration and they're liable to show up, which makes it hard to get concentrated because you're still dealing with your PTSD or whatever your psychological issues are. And you've got to set that aside. And we don't have meditation techniques that are reliable enough to set everything aside. We need other help. And yeah, the thing I recommend is, yeah, psychological work. But what you and Jay are doing is fascinating and could be really helpful. And again, what they're trying to do with the 
uh, psilocybin and so forth for dealing with PTSD. Again, this could be really helpful. This brings up a really interesting point, actually, that I think everyone could comment on, which is that from what I hear from uh, you, Shenzhen, and you, Dr. Sanguinetti, it seems that you've had success in uh, assisting people to get into a state where the default mode network is less active than usual. And what's interesting about that is that people report to you too, as far as I know, that that state is inherently rewarding, which is a very interesting uh, fact along the lines of what we've just been discussing. Because you know, it would be one thing if you were stimulating areas of the brain that in neurology are thought to be related to rewards, such as you know dopamine circuits or uh, areas that produce oxytocin or opioids. But in fact, what you're doing is actually turning off parts of the brain that we haven't traditionally thought are related to reward systems. But yet people report that this is a state that they want to return to. And it really motivates them, as far as I understand, to go back there and find that place again. And so, and I think all of us on this call have heard many stories of where people report that, you know, the fog cleared, the clouds parted, the veil parted, the experience of my senses became much more vivid and clear, and they felt intimate with reality. And that experience was so profound for them that they did drastic things to change their life to recreate it. And that is not necessarily something that, as far as I know, we have a real model for in neuroscience. Why is that so satisfying? What is it about that? neurologically that feels so good would be my, my next question. Let me, let me jump in. One way to restate, I think, what you're saying is um, <clears throat> neuroscience is about to discover Buddhism. Uh, first noble truth is actually that meaning the truth that makes you noble um, is dukkha, uh, the no, noble truth of suffering. Um, the implica uh, and the whole Buddhist path is about us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a quasi-final solution to suffering. <laughs> quasi-final because, I mean, in Buddhism, it's said to be final, but that's just one person's suffering. <laughs> so I'm going to say a quasi-final solution to suffering um, is unconditional happiness. So what's implied here is if we assume that for most people, the activation of the default network um, is associated with uh, egoic angst that goes very, very, very deep, existential angst. If that system is associated with that, which if it's the, this is me system, I got a lot of worries as soon as I got it, this is me. So for most people, the 
turning off of that is the pause that refreshes. It's a relief from a suffering you didn't even know was there. Um, so the paper, the banner paper that you get published is a whole new theory of fulfillment. You don't necessarily need your, uh, uh, your nucleus accumbens or your mesocortical, you know, what have you. It's like all you need to do is stop causing yourself misery and you automatically experience that as fulfilling. And then I would say in some ways, the progression that Lee has described, there's other ways, slightly different ways you can talk about that progression. Many of several actually. One way to think about it is it's deriving fulfillment with less and less somethingness needed for the fulfillment. As you are developing higher and higher focus power so that at some point you're able to rest your attention on fulfillment that doesn't need dopamine or opioids or epinephrine, it's enough, almost a nothing that gives you everything you need continuously. And if you integrate that continuous contact with nothing that is fulfilling, if you integrate that into daily life, you're able to hold that to some extent as you go about life activities, you're able to use it to, inf uh, to uh, refine how you carry yourself in the world. That's the path right there. It's the whole path. Yeah. So my favorite jhana is the seventh one. It goes by the name of the realm of nothingness or no thingness. And it's an experience. It's an experience of nothing, profound nothing. There's just nothing. Uh, it's sort of like you go down into the basement and you hit the light switch and it doesn't work and you're trying to see what's in front of you and you can't quite figure it out at first. And finally you realize there's nothing down here at all. Only there's no end to the basement. It's just nothing. And it's a very nice place to hang out because there's nothing to bother you. But going back a little bit to uh, what you said earlier, another very important sutta. This one comes from Sutta Nipata 515. And Mogaraja asked the Buddha, how should one view the world so the king of death cannot see one? The Buddha replies, view the world as empty, ever mindful. If you don't go conceiving of a self, you may become one who overcomes death 
and the king of death will not see you. I take this to mean, view the world as empty. For the Buddha, that probably meant empty of a self or what belongs to a self. Although we could certainly substitute in the Mahayana version of emptiness that everything is dependently originated. Nothing stands alone. Ever mindful. And I take the ever mindful to mean you need a new default. Instead of the default mode network as your default, make mindfulness as your default. And so when there's nothing to do, you're just mindful of what's going on. In fact, if there's something to do, you're just mindful of what you're doing. If you can do that, you won't be conceiving of self. And the king of death, the existential angst, no longer will exist. So yeah, uh, what you described, the Buddha already, already said 2,500 years ago. I mean, he was amazing. How old are you, Lee? 72. You're 72. I'm 77. I got five years on you. Yeah, well, that's why you're so much smarter than me. I think it's why I'm so much more worried about death than you. <laughs> because Indeed. my mathematician mind does the statistics. Um, I just want to say, it's interesting. I did not know that quote from the Buddha about, I think the king of death must be Yamaraja, right? In uh, Yamant, Yama, Y-A-M-A, which is an ancient Indo-European god of the underworld, actually. Um, I'm guessing in the original Pali, that's the word, but. Um, yeah, I don't the, know uh, what the Pali is. The, um, that's the, the comforting thought that comes to me when I find myself doing the statistics of my <laughs> probability of survival another year, another whatever. The comforting thought is um, if you stay at the source, you sidestep death. Uh, it's not that different. <laughs> They asked Sasaki Roshi, what's going to happen to you after you die? And he said, same, same. <laughs> same thing that's happening to me right now. <laughs> Don't you get it? When Dilko Kinsey Rinpoche was dying, he said to his students, Don't worry, nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the really fascinating thing for me about this study and everything you two are saying and the implications for neuroscience is the first four jhanas to me are relatively easy to explain using current thinking on neuroscience about almost any appetite of behavior, sex, food, eating, drugs, all of that stuff. And it follows a similar progression uh, subjectively to that. And so I think it, it would be fairly easy to sort of explain those things. Uh, but according to current neuroscience thinking, for the most part, unless you look at some more cutting edge uh, theories that I think we've discussed in past episodes, uh, you would think that that experience of basically consummating an appetitive behavior, which is what the jhanas uh, seem to be doing without actually doing the thing, like eating or having sex, but you're having the same neurochemical arc, right? Wanting, desire, ecstasy, fulfillment, satisfaction, calm, right? Which everyone recognizes. Yet, 
what you are reporting subjectively is something that goes against almost all thinking, which is that the stuff after that is the most fun and the most exciting. And I think to most people who aren't semi-familiar with these states, what you two are saying about how feeling yourself in a black void of nothingness that resembles death does not <laughs> sound great. I mean, I don't think if most people would say, well, I can experience something that seems like an orgasm or feels like eating the best meal of my life or lying next to my lover happier, finishing Thanksgiving with my family, or I could experience a black void of death. They would definitely choose the former and neuroscience supports reasoning for the former, but the latter is reported consistently across almost all meditators to be more satisfying than the first. So people go through these four jhanas or they go through other meditation or contemplative mystical traditions that uh, cause a reward system to be self-simulated or we can assume that that's what's happening. And in fact, many people report that those experiences are more ecstatic than their most ecstatic experience being alive in any other way whatsoever. And one of my ideas about that is that it's possible that those experiencing more ecstasy in a meditation than you would in regular life, the effect of that would be to turn you towards yourself or turn you towards meditation or turn you away from engaging in things in the outside world that seem to provide this initial level of fulfillment that we're sort of familiar with towards finding this deeper pleasure and towards finding out what is beyond those things. And so I'm sort of wondering, A, what you two think the purpose of the first four jhanas are and engaging in those sorts of pleasures that are more familiar, and B, what do we all think might actually be occurring neurologically that explains why this void is so pleasurable? Does that make any sense or is that useful or interesting to anyone else besides me? Yeah, Chelsea, I think you're really on to a very interesting way of formulating some scientific questions. I, I, I think it's really, it's a, a good direction to pursue. And I'm interested in what Lee has to say in answer to your question, response to your question. Yeah, so I would say the jhanas, all eight of them, are a warm-up exercise for investigating reality. I mean, normally we sit down and yeah, we're distracted or whatever, but by stepping through these states, it calms the ego constructing processes. And so now you're looking at reality from a less egocentric perspective, and you're looking at it from a indistractable perspective. And this is just gonna give you a much better understanding of what you're looking at. And so, yeah, as, as, as fun and exciting as these jhanas are, they're the warm-up. You know, we're about to run the 100-yard dash in the Olympics, and the jhanas are stretching your hamstrings before you get in the blocks. You know, the insight into the nature of reality is the most rewarding thing. Um, one of the problems with the jhanas is that students, when they first learn them, well, they become jhana junkies. You know, they found this source of pleasure and they want to do it again and again. And so I need to keep an eye on them and make sure that once they've gotten to the fourth jhana, that they start coming out of it and doing their insight practice. And the insights they get are so much more rewarding 
than any of these states. Ghana junkie cure. It's just not happening anymore because the investigation and understanding of reality is what really makes this work. And this was the Buddhist genius. He, uh, he did, you know, he studied with two teachers and then he did austerities. And six years after he left home, he was like, yeah, this ain't working. I need to find something else. And he remembered a time when he was sitting under a rose apple tree and his father was working and he stumbled into the first jhana. And now a quarter of a century later, he's going, I wonder, wonder if this would work. The pleasure of these states is not sensual pleasure. Why should I be afraid of it? Could these jhanas be the way to awakening? And then he decided these jhanas are the way to awakening. But he was too weak from eating one grain of rice a day that he started eating, got his strength back, sat down under the Bodhi tree and became fully awakened. But the awakened wasn't just entering the jhanas. He was using them as a preliminary for his investigation of reality. And apparently what he was investigating and coming up with that night was Paticca Samapada, dependent origination. And that, that really is the heart of the Buddha's teachings to understand the relationships between everything that's going on from a, a non-egocentric perspective. Now I said a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know that I covered all that you were talking about there, but the, the bit about finding the seventh jhana most rewarding, part of my love of it is coming out of it and gaining really deep insights. So it's like the last thing I did before I got this huge reward. So hanging out there, yeah, I'm gonna do that again because when I come out, I might get some other reward. And I think it's, it's the relationship between having that mind that was so quiet and calm to then investigating reality that, that made the, the previous state, the seventh jhana, more rewarding. How do you typically uh, have them switch to the observing or insight or deconstructive side? What's your first suggestion if once they're ready with the uh, jhanas, what techniques do you have them do typically for? Uh, the observing. So what I do is I go through the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, and discuss the practices that are given in there. And so by the time people are actually getting to the fourth jhana, they've heard, you know, me describe and have done guided meditations on several insight practices. And I tell them, yeah, and whatever you think of when you think of standard Vipassana, which for you know 24 people on a retreat, I'm sure we get at least 12 different definitions, uh, but whatever you think of as an insight practice, you could do that and any other insight practice that you know. So I'm not going for a specific insight practice. Uh, it's just what I tell them, the perfect practice to do is the one you want to do, because of course, if you want to do it, you'll do it more wholeheartedly. If I tell you, do the body scan and you hate the body scan, yeah, you're not going to like that. But I say, do what you want to do. And I've given them a whole smorgasbord to choose from. Decide when you sit down what your insight practice is going to be after the jhana, so you don't have to waste any time figuring it out. Get that decided beforehand. And then 
let's say you're sitting in the fourth jhana and it's time for insight practice, just start doing the insight practice. You don't have to banish the jhana. The quiet stillness will break up as you do the insight practice, but it's like sharpening a knife. I mean, you sharpen a knife, you got to really, you still got to go cut with it. And you don't worry about the fact it's getting dull as you're cutting because you can come back to the ne next meditation period and sharpen your mind again and go cut some more bonds of ignorance. You two describe for listeners who don't necessarily know. Um, and this is something I know not every teacher is comfortable talking about their personal experience, but if either of you would be willing, I think it would be really interesting to hear from you two for listeners what the subjective feeling of, of these insights is and why it's so rewarding. You know, why is, why is gaining insight into reality? How does it feel good? How does the basement with no bounds feel so good? And how does uh, letting go of our ordinary worries and concerns feel good? And how does avoid feel good? And how does exactly what does that feel like for people who've never been there and don't know why they might want to try? I, I'd be very curious to hear a rich description. Well, of One thing that uh, might be helpful is the distinction between insight items. Okay, I have insight into this, I have insight into that. And of course, insight items can also be indistinguishable from philosophical, you know, claims, <laughs> or even belief systems. Um, but they're not the same as a belief or a claim because I noticed this. I got insight into X so, or Y or Z. So when we speak of insight in English, that's usually going to, well, actually it could translate several uh, poly uh, terms, but we're, we're probably talking about panya basically prajna in Sanskrit. Um, lots of other words could be used, but let's just use that one. So <clears throat> there's wisdom in the sense or insight in the sense of items, this insight, that insight, which you can read in a book. You can read other people's insights. <laughs> Of course, some of them might just be a myth. <laughs> they aren't really insights, but hopefully you'll discern, oh yeah, <laughs> that seems like an insight. And then you can have those insights yourself with practice. The other way to think about wisdom or insight is it's a general mode of functioning. It's a change in the way thinking occurs. Um, after which actually all your thought processes are in some ways different, but specifically from time to time with regards to important issues, 
there can be a I just knownness that wells up from the depths, making auto correlations. On autopilot, the depths are correlating without the surface needing to logically arrange it, and it arises fully formed as an aha. That's the taste of the insight or wisdom function operating within you. So if you, <clears throat> Lee knows this, the traditional iconography for Manjushri, which is the Mahayana Bodhisattva that uh, represents prajna or wisdom, he's shown on a lion um, and in one hand, he has a book, a traditional Indian book, which is palm leaves or birch uh, paper woven together. It looks like a brick. On one hand, that's a book, though that's insight in the sense of insight items. And then the other hand, he holds a sword. That's the activity of the wisdom function that can cut through the surface, penetrate to the deeper view. I'm gonna suggest that the insight activity is uh, intrinsically rewarding as that gets activated within you. You don't, maybe need dopamine or endocannabinoids or opioids. You know, this might be a, a whole other thing. Um, so that would be something I'd throw out to clarify how the term insight might be used and uh, the relevance of that to your question. My teacher, Ayakema, defined insight as the understood experience, which I think is really good because you can read it in a book and get the understanding, or you can have an experience but not have a clue what happened. It's the understood experience is an insight. And she would say insight wisdom, vipassana panya, right? So the insight is to give you wisdom. And indeed, I mean, my interest in science is because I want to know what's going on. And when I find out what's going on, that's rewarding. You know, that's, that's what's driving all of my investigation is I want to find out what's happening, whether it be, you know, something very mundane or something at a, at a very deeply spiritual level is this search to understand what's happening. And it turns out that the Buddha's method of get your mind concentrated and investigate reality from an undistracted, less egocentric perspective is really, really useful. I've used it mostly in spiritual matters, but it does play over, as you say, you reprogram your brain once you start getting these insights. In <clears throat> excuse me, in particular, I tell my students, yeah, you get enough insights and you stop doing the stupid stuff you've been doing. You just realize this doesn't work. 
and you see why it doesn't work. And now you start doing other things. Um, and this, this makes your life go better. And this is what the Buddha was teaching. That's beautiful. I love that. I, it made me think when you two talked about this, especially the image of something welling up through you or through your nervous system and having a taste, it just reminds me of all the great mystical poets of the, of the, of all of the contemplative traditions and their sense of merging with God really. And I know we don't technically use that word in Buddhism, but, um, it sounds like the something that's coming through you in those moments is deeply ecstatic and fulfilling in a way that is totally different than anything most people have experienced. Yeah, you know, that phrase that Shenzhen gave insight welling up from the depths, it really struck me from thinking about how each piece, let's just take each neuron as a piece, and then you've got neurons working in groups, that's a bigger piece. And then you've got groups of neurons working in groups, that's a bigger piece. So, you know, each of these neurons and groups of neurons are all, one way to think about it is they're nested. So the function or the computation that they're doing locally is sent as an output into a higher level. It's a nest. It's like building a big nest of consciousness. And what I hear when I hear Lee, both you and Shinzen talk about your experience and using phrases like wells up from the depths, you know, you can almost think about like what's happening at the very base of the brain, like the early levels of the visual cortex, for example, as, you know, moving through this nested process and it's each level is adding meaning and context and Essentially, when we get to the default mode network, which we, we really don't know much about what that's actually doing, but we think it has something to do with the way the, the thing at the top, which is this illusory self, is narrating all the processing that's coming before. And it's trying to fit it into a narrative or a story or meaning. And that's a very helpful thing from an evolutionary standpoint. It helps us to make sense of the world and have goals and have goal-directed behavior but it also causes a lot of our fixation and trouble and, and you know, all the, all the uh, expectations that are not missed. And then we feel like we're not fulfilled because we're not getting what we want. Um, and what I hear you talking about by using these concentration practices, by really focusing attention is it's not like you're changing one place in the brain or you're, you know, Lee, I love your notion of the feedback, but it's almost like all the all the little feedbacks all across the nest are really being changed at every level, such that you're freeing the larger context, the, the sort of narrative context of the whole nest, such that the lower levels are more salient. They get to vibrate through the system, so you actually get to see what's there in the stimulus instead of the you know, it's, it's not just one level of refinement. It's, it's like thousands, millions, maybe even billions of interpretive feedback loops before you get to consciously see what you're actually looking at visually, for example. Um, and so, you know, I just think about that in terms of like all these systems in the brain. And then you think of something like um, the dopamine system, the reward system. You can't 
turn it on or off. It's always dopamine is always happening in the brain. Reward is always happening in the brain. And so what sounds like is happening is that you're doing these attention practices, these concentration practices, you are rearranging um, the lowest to the highest levels all at once. And then when reward happens, it happens within a different context. And the experiencer is relating to that reward in a completely different way. Um, and then for reasons that I still don't understand, you have uh, these deep levels of insight emerging from that system. Um, but I just wanted to give that perspective that it's, it's really the whole, you know, every nested level seems to be changing and every little feedback between, you know, hundreds of millions to billions of connections um, all seem to be changing what they're doing based on this, you know, what, what seems like a, a pretty straightforward uh, concentration or attention practice. The other piece uh, that really sticks out for me, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it sounds like you concentrate really intently and then you move your concentration to the smile or in my case I typically feel the the feeling of the shirt on my shoulder that typically gets me into the first jhana um, and there's something about the stability to the instability of the system um, that seems to be important I, I don't know if that strikes the bell for anybody but it seems like, you know, if you think about this nested system, it needs it needs both stability and instability to do its job. Um, but ultimately, the outcome is meaning for, for the person um, at the end of the whole the whole hierarchy. Um, but in this case, it seems like you're focusing away from that onto, let's say, a visual object. And then you quickly move your attention away. And the movement of the attention away towards something that feels good, like the smile, then gives you this burst of activity. Um, and again, that burst of activity is very low level uh, in terms of the neural system, and yet it vibrates up to this global experience that's quite different than the normal global experience, the default experience. Um, and so again, it sounds like this sort of reorientation of the nest such that the basic input get completely interpreted in a different context. Yeah, that's, that's I, I mean, this is far more detailed than I had ever thought because I've only got the subjective okay. to go by. But yeah, it's that's correct. I mean, your first your attention is on your object to generate access concentration, which might be the breath or a candle flame or whatever you're working on, a mantra. And then you shift your attention to the pleasant sensation and then when the jhana arrives, you, you don't have to shift your attention. It's it's overwhelming enough. Your attention goes to the piti sukha experience, the, the glee happiness experience. And when you want to move to the next jhana, the second one, what I tell the students is take a deep breath and really let the energy out. And that will calm the physical aspect of it. And now you can focus on the happiness part. And you want to move to the third one, take another deep breath, calm things further so the physical aspect is completely gone. So there is a, a shifting in there. When you're in the jhana and you're stable, yeah, there's just that happening, although it might wobble a bit with your thinking because, yeah, you're not quite deeply concentrated enough 
so that there's not any thinking happening. And so it wobbles and it comes back and settles again. To get to the point where it's not wobbling at all, you probably got to spend multiple hours in access concentration. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a different state. But yeah, then you come out of the thing. And I mean, it's now a completely different universe. You're, you're back to so-called reality and you're investigating it from a very different perspective, but it doesn't have the one-pointed focus or anything. And generally you're looking at it either in terms of its changing nature, anicca, it's ultimately unsatisfying nature, dukkha, or it's empty nature, anatta. And you start seeing the world in terms of these these orientations, the three characteristics, the characteristics of what's going on. And so you start seeing the world in terms of that and you get the aha, this is how the world works. And that's the most rewarding thing of all. Jay, you're familiar with how we train the coaches in unified mindfulness. Um, one of the themes that we alert them to is the issue of what we call integration, which is essentially how do you make a something that's sort of a nothing, how does that um, make you a fulfilled and admirable human being as you walk through the world, loved in life, missed in death, as the Masons say. Um, what's the relationship between this sort of very impersonal nothing, sort of nothing, um, and the very embodied endeavor of living. So that theme we call integration. Jay, I'm wondering if you can see how the sequence that Lee is describing represents one systematic way to go about one aspect of that, but it's a very important one. It's uh, it's a training to, uh, it gives a, uh, a path dependent relationship to nothing. If you've gone to the nothing by the path he's describing many, many times, then you will find that nothing is what was actually at the core all along. Um, and um, so it's a way of systematically pointing out to people and training their attentional habits so that uh, the nothingness of call it whatever you want, the depths, uh, is a source of constant fulfillment for the surface. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> you know, 
as I'm listening, listening to you talk about that, I'm thinking about the problem, if you can call it that, that the brain is confronted with, which is it has no idea what's out there, outside of it. Um, and it, it's confronting problems that aren't in, in the, you know, it's not a three-dimensional world that's abiding by the laws of time as we understand them. <laughs> so the problem is actually much more complicated I think even then we, we get, and maybe it's quantum or something else, but somehow the brain is confronted with what seems like information and it has to figure out how to present that to you in a stable way so that you can function in the world um, given all the uncertainty and all the issues, uh, ultimately knowing that you're going to die at the end and trying to make meaning out of all of this. And, um, it's got to do that in a way that motivates you through these same systems that we've been talking about. These reward systems are also the motivation systems. And so it's taking an input that we still, even as scientists really have no real firm understanding of what that input really is and turning it into something you can understand and fixing it in a sense so that you can do something with it in this three dimensional temporal world that we live in. And what I hear you talking about is you're sort of deconstructing that process in a way that it that still can be stable for the system um, because it's irrespective of how much insight you have about the meaning of the the actual nature of the world, you still have a body that still has to be three dimensional in order to function in some sense. And so by going through these steps, it seems like you're allowing the system to settle stabilize, but then stabilize around something that it's, uh, I don't really like to use the word designed, but let's just say evolution or nature designed the brain. You know, it's stabilizing around something that it really wasn't designed or shaped to do in the first place. Um, And so it makes sense to me that you would need to do these steps, train the system in order to essentially congeal around nothingness in a way that it can function and um, in, in, in a way that is still motivating <laughs> as well, because I think that's a big problem, actually, with all of this. Um, well, so anyway, I'll leave it there and see what your thoughts are. Wow. You know, that, uh, that stimulates a little bit of a weird thought. Um, <laughs> well, you haven't heard it yet. Um, we love your weird thoughts. That's why every time you say I'm having a weird thought, it turns into the best part of the podcast. <laughs> Some teachers, I'm thinking specifically of um, uh, Pema Turgeon, talk about uh, a test of liberation. Imagine that from now on until the natural time of your death, you're in a little box, a sensory deprivation tank, essentially. You aren't aware of it, but you're maintained with IVs and catheters and whatever is needed. So it's basically now nothing. 24 seven, 
for the duration. You're not being tortured. You know, we could, you know, play with that scenario, but you're just in an SD tank and that's the rest of your life. That's 20 years or 40 years, whatever. How horrifying is that prospect for you? If for realsy, it's actually not that horrifying, meaning in some ways it's different, but not as different as those years would have been if you were bopping around in see, hear, feel. So I think she says this is how you can know if how liberated you are. How would you relate to nothingness? But another weird way of putting it is actually human beings occasionally find themselves in that kind of situation. So, um, uh, for example, even in a very advanced country like the US, you can be incarcerated in, um, quote, the whole, which is pretty similar to what I just described for years. Ordinary human beings actually find themselves in these situations, something like it, meaning brains as a biological entity find themselves in this situation. You might say that what the contemplative traditions of the world suggest is a sort of answer to a weird question uh, how fucking good is the brain? Is it good enough to just cut off all the, the senses, but just leave whatever's left, which for most people, of course, is the default mode, now generating one moment of hell after another, after another for the duration? Or is, is the brain good enough and reality kind enough that actually there's a natural solution? It's what we should be. It's, it's your new job, Lee. I, know, I think you've worked in prisons. You know? So you work in the, they should have a special formless jhana retreat for the people that they keep in the hole. Seriously. Maybe they'll do that in China. I don't know that they'll do that here. But just say, anyway, crazy idea. It's like what the meditation adept brain has done. And what the poor guy that's in a hole for years is being asked to do. Um, they're sort of the same thing. Yeah. And the brain is that good. And reality is that kind. Yeah, if we could get 
everyone in prison to meditate deeply, successfully, it would make things a lot better. The problem is you do need uh, outside circumstances to be favorable to learn to meditate. And in a prison, it's, it's not really favorable. Yes, I have been in uh, prisons to teach meditation. And I really admire the guys in there putting in the work in such unfavorable circumstances. But yeah, to get so you were adept at the jhanas would be, would be quite difficult unless the prison authorities were like, okay, we're gonna try and do this. And there were enough guys motivated and they could be isolated from the general chaos that is what is actually a prison. Uh, but yeah, it would be fantastic. As for sensory deprivation tank, two comments. One, uh, they did that for the astronauts, the guys with the right stuff. And I think the longest anyone ever lasted was eight hours before they started hallucinating and whatnot. So if you were in that box, you would start hallucinating. And two, I've meditated in a sensory deprivation tank, and it's by far the best environment to meditate in because there's your body is unlimited. You can just go with your mind, and it was fantastic. Um, I only knew the first jhana at that time, but it was by far the most intense first jhana I had ever experienced doing that. And yeah, I played with it for a while. And then, you know, I didn't know what else to do. And finally, I just wandered off into fantasy land. And I was having some of the best, most vivid fantasies I've ever had in my life until they came and knocked on the door because I'd been in there for an hour and 45 minutes. This, my friend had one in his backyard and nobody had ever stayed in that long. They're knocking on the door. Are you all right? And I was just having a great time. So I think if you were in that situation, you would start hallucinating uh, within a short time. And then eventually, I think you would start believing your hallucinations. You would, you would find yourself in the matrix. I think that's where you would actually wind up, that that's what would happen to your brain. We, we need the outside stimulation. Uh, you know, people ask me, what is consciousness? And I say, Consciousness is an emergent property of the activity of your nervous system in response to the environment in which it finds itself embedded. So it's not just yours, it's the environment as well. Uh, it's not just your brain. So yeah, put somebody in a isolation tank long enough and they're just gonna hallucinate. And I would suspect long enough, they'll start believing their hallucinations are reality. That's just my guess. This talk of this process of uh, hallucination and sensory deprivation tanks brings to my mind the practice of dark retreat, which is something that's done in, in several traditions. I'm thinking in specific of the certain Tibetan traditions. And the, one of the functions of the dark retreat training is said to be uh, a sort of simulation for the after-death or post-death um, experience that the uh, individual will go through which is presumably, uh, and now I'm, now I'm speculating a bit, presumably some kind of cessation of sensory input or at least a drastic reduction of it. And then the appearance of, of all these various visions uh, coming up from what, the subconscious or who knows what. And so one of the ways in which sensory deprivation is used is everyone's nodding, 
is stick someone in a in a dark tent, you know, no uh, sound, really, uh, certainly no sense of night and day, and see what comes up. You know, this is a rehearsal, they say, uh, for what might happen at death. I have to chime in on the hallucination front um, briefly. Uh, one of the ideas about one of the ideas I've had that I think is somewhat supported by the literature about what may be happening in hallucination is actually a reorganization or and potentially a chaotic form of reorganization of top-down processing that Jay has been talking about. So our attempts to organize reality in a specific way can begin to fall apart in either a good way or a bad way. And as Shinzen and many others talk about, many meditators start to hallucinate at some point on the path. And uh, also there's work looking at how schizophrenia may actually relate to disorders of attention. And attention is one of the main ways that we do top-down organization. So you could say that our perception of reality all the time is kind of hallucination because it's just a way of ordering our reality from a top-down perspective. We've gotten used to this specific order of things and it doesn't seem like a hallucination because it seems like what we think reality is. But uh, like you said, Lee, if we're in the matrix in the sensory deprivation tank, maybe we're also in the matrix in our reality itself. It's just a different matrix, a different top-down organization. And um, I would love to hear Jay's thoughts on this, but this is just something that popped into my mind as you all are discussing this. Yep. No, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, one of the jobs of attention is to amplify a signal. So if you're trying to uh, focus on an object like a basketball, the other job of attention is to inhibit everything around it. So the background, and that's true at all these nested levels that we've been talking about. And so attention is fix, fixing the object and massively inhibiting a lot of the other parts of the visual system and other parts of the brain. And the point of that is because like, like we were talking about, the brain doesn't know what's out there. It has to guess, it has to hypothesize essentially. And it's using past experience to try to figure out that's a basketball, it's not a baseball. And I think that because I'm on a basketball court, I'm not on a baseball field, but um, it's a guess. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't call it, like exactly a hallucination because you can have a special case to call hallucination, but it's a guess about what's out there and it's not a perfect guess. And we actually don't have any way uh, philosophically or scientifically to confirm how good of a guess it is. Um, but it's the top down processing is basically constraining the bottom up to a model or, or what it thinks, what the brain thinks is the input. And that there's a massive amount of top-down constraint. Actually, there's more top-down constraint in the brain than there is bottom-up processing. And so bottom-up means like the, the eyes are the input to the brain, that's the bottom, and then it inputs into V1 in the visual cortex, that's the first level. So that information starts feeding through the nest. And for every bit that goes up, there's one to three bits of constraint coming back down. And so there's a massive amount of sort of storytelling in the brain because of this. And I think partly what we're talking about here is 
trying to free the brain of all that top-down energy. It's essentially energetic inhibition uh, going on in the brain and allowing the system to reorient towards what's actually coming in there in the input. Um, but I wanted to throw out a kind of even weirder thought than Shenzhen, which gets to something you said, Lee, I kind of want to push on it a little bit, that the brain is, uh, that, that consciousness is emerging from the brain. Um, there's another idea, another theory uh, that's becoming emerging popular again. Emerging from the nervous system, not just the brain, but okay. Uh, yes, I take that point. Yes, definitely. Brain, brain body. Um, one, another way to say that is that it's a computation. The brain is computing, and the output of that computation is conscious experience or phenomenology. Some philosophers call it qualia. Um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem challenges that, according to one of our friends, uh, Roger Penrose, Sir, Sir Roger Penrose. Um, he wrote a book called The Emperor's New Mind, where he's deeply troubled by uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And the conclusion he comes to is that there, the insight, if you want to call it that, that Gödel has is not computed. There's nothing in his nervous system that could have computed that answer it, due to the nature of the logic, and we can get into that. But that, that information must have been there already, and somehow his brain picked it up, uh, resonated with it. You know, you can come up with a sort of hippie analogy. And so there's another view in philosophy of science which says consciousness may be somehow more fundamental to nature in the way that energy and matter are fundamental to nature. And that you can come up with all kinds of sort of wacky statements like the basketball that I am looking at is actually made of the same stuff as the consciousness that's looking at it. So they're not separate. They're the same thing. Um, and maybe the energy and matter are emerging from that consciousness. And there are laws of nature that dictate that. And that's the relationship of my experience to that consciousness. But uh, there's somehow more of the same kind than of a separate kind. Um, and it, it seems to me when I read and even have some very slight experiences of, of the, the nature that you guys are talking about, it seems to me that that's some of the insight, that these things aren't separate. Um, they're somehow the same thing. So I just wanted to throw that out as another uh, opinion in science that's becoming more popular. Now, I'd say most neuroscientists still believe that consciousness is computed and that, that it's the output of some physical properties. Um, but it could, the opposite is also a scientifically valid point of view. So uh, going back to Gordon's theorem, the, the thing I love about it, it, basically he shows us a hole in the system and the hole in the system is self-reference, which is exactly what the Buddha is saying. <laughs> so Gordon's theorem and the Buddha are yeah, just saying the same thing from a different point of view. And when I'm saying in response to the environment in which it finds itself embedded, I am bringing in the basketball that the basketball is part of consciousness. Consciousness always has to have an object in Buddhism or at least in early Buddhism. And so there's definitely, it's not confined 
to this mind-body process. It's not confined just to the environment of, you know, there's my tanka on the wall and there's the corner of the room up there or anything like that. It's also due to, well, I call it SODAPI, S-O-D-A-P-I, streams of dependently arising processes interacting. That's all there is. That's what dependent origination is really teaching in its ultimate thing. And so what's going on in my conscious mind is the result not only of the neurons firing in my brain due to the sensory input I'm experiencing, the memories I'm having, but how my brain is being wired because I went to high school in Leland, Mississippi, and I was raised as a Presbyterian preacher's kid, and now I'm teaching Buddhism, and the fact that I live in America instead of Afghanistan, I mean, we could go on forever. The fact that the Big Bang took place and, you know, some, some star exploded somewhere and left some oxygen lying around so that, I mean, it, there's so much that goes together to make up this moment of conscious in, consciousness in me. And it's just all these streams of dependently arising processes interacting. And they're all verbs. There aren't actually any nouns anywhere in the universe. It's just that some verbs move kind of slow. Good thing, I love that. I wrote that down, I'm gonna get a tattoo. <laughs> soda pie, soda pie. I was gonna ask if, so Jay and everyone else, is there, if consciousness is a property of everything, which is emerging from the sort of smallest particles of what we constitutes the universe through the basketball and through us, and when we meditate, we remove the barriers to allowing ourselves to perceive this process of consciousness bubbling up and animating and becoming us as we live our lives, is the answer to the question of why that is blissful because that consciousness is inherently blissful. This is something people report in certain aspects, uh, certain traditions in Buddhism say it, but do you think there's a possibility that that consciousness, which is basically a property of physics, could somehow be inherently blissful and pleasurable either on its own or to the nervous system when we taste it? It's a fascinating question because we have an embodied experience of, let's just call it um, bliss. Let's say bliss just means whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> you get the idea because <laughs> there's so many technicalities. The terms are defined in traditions across languages. So let's just say there's this generic, we're going to call it bliss. And we know some of its reflections at the human level is, you know, follow your bliss, what have you. Now we're asking, it's possible <clears throat> that the human experience of being humanly conscious is just a small proper subset of 
conscious, which is then equated with as far, that's as far as we can think. It's like, okay. So then the question is, what is bliss for this thing that's so much bigger than us and so much smaller than us that we actually can't even wrap our human mind around it? What is bliss for it? Well, we might try to uh, deduce something. Understanding Gödel's theorem says there's going to be uh, limitations on what we can deduce. Um, but we could try to deduce something. We could actually look at the sequence that Lee and I have been describing from a slightly different languaging. We could look at that training sequence that is a lifelong training. Let's understand the scale we're talking about. It's a lifelong training to integrate this into daily life. But you get the general principle. So <clears throat> we could say, we might say that, okay, we look at the human experience and we, um, we apply what's called negative thinking in mathematics. That just means you try to think backwards. It's a good thing. <laughs> Let's think backwards. So um, a human being went through a sequence of acclimatization to a lifelong sequence, to a state that is progressively less fixated and more attenuated than the previous. And it's one after another, you acclimatize to that. Okay, at some point you've successfully acclimatized. You're walking around without completely losing contact with the nirvanic element. So you've been successful. Now we're gonna think back, okay. Uh, we know the process of integration. So sort of look back along the train um, and ask ourselves, um, if where this all starts, which is the moment of the Big Bang of each arising, if where all this starts, if it, what about it might correspond to um, my human experience of being fulfilled. So there's this, what's before the Big Bang, which seems oxymoronic, but physicists do talk about what's before the Big Bang. Sir Roger, for example. Um, metaphorically, uh, what's before 
objectified experience is there's it's not human but if it were human what would be its bliss what would correspond and it's not human i can't even know what it is but i'm going to try to guess what would be the analog of bliss for nothing whatsoeverness <laughs> so what is the bliss of for nothing whatsoeverness um and my guess would be that it relates to what in science is called spontaneity, the just happeningness, which may have a relationship to the Buddhist notion of this being, you know, this being that is, etc., the condition co-arising. I would guess that if nature had something that is the analog of a, a human's bliss, it would be nature's just happeningness, which relates to free energy, entropy, and our old friend Carl Friston. So that maybe, maybe, maybe this is like a wild conjecture. The pre-human, indeed pre-agent experience of what we model with free energy, that might be the primordium, the bud, way, 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 way before biological life. The bud around which happiness eventually evolved through Darwin. Did that make any sense? We're looking innate. Okay, so someone's shaking their head, Chelsea. So I guess that's enough. Uh, sometimes I'm not. It made complete sense. Good. It made complete sense, and it was so incredibly beautiful. And at the risk of completely oversimplifying what you're saying it makes me think of traditions that talk about the play of the divine and that the if we're thinking of the divine as this pre-big bang wow i hadn't thought of entity, that it's delight the cosmic play. cosmic leela yes. uh, leela uh, but it also goes you know this is going to be a whole other conversation. And I'm a little concerned about time, although we're all having a, you know, a great time here. But one of the things from the early Buddhist tradition, which is uh, Lee is strongly influenced by that early Buddhist tradition, um, related to the jhanas are the <clears throat> three gates of liberation. I've always found that formulation fascinating. It's another way to think about an insight concentration state. 
Um, so it's the Vimokha Mukha. Mukha is a gate. Vimokha is Vimoksha, so same as Moksha would be set free. So the, the, the liberation gates are um, uh, all phenomena are um, uh, uh, signless. All phenomena are empty and all phenomena are just happening. And that last, all phenomena are, so we're talking about an experience that, well, they say signless, so homogeneous, vacuous, and just happeningness. That's a, those are the, the whole other way to organize uh, the process that we're talking about. And I've always found it interesting that there was a place in early Buddhist formulation for just happeningness, because I, I hadn't thought about the Hindu Mahalila kind of thing, but it is certainly the case that spontaneous is central to Taoism and Chan, Zen, and also the Tibetans have several different words for different flavors of it just happens on its ownness. So maybe our human experience, which is two billion years of biological evolution, but I'm thinking of thermodynamic evolution proceeding um, uh, because these principles are relevant to Big Bang th physics. In fact, that's our, our friend Roger got the Nobel Prize last year exactly for, well, yeah, in that area, let's say, black hole thermodynamics and, uh, and such. So uh, I guess that's it. That's what I wanted to throw out as a crazy idea. Yeah. This idea comes from the Abhidhamma, which is not the earliest layer of early Buddhism. And you don't find, you don't find just happening, just happeningness in the very earliest in, in the suttas. It's all dependent origination. It's all cause and effect. That's what's there. And the other thing to keep in mind, though, the early suttas, the Buddha is not doing metaphysics. He's only doing, we could say phenomenology, but not in the husserl sense or anything like that. He's just saying, look at phenomena and understand what's happening. Understand how you're relating to phenomena. And so the, the metaphysics shows up with the Abhidhamma and, you know, takes off from there until you have Buddhist metaphysics uh, in the commentaries and in the later traditions. One of the things that happens, particularly in the Mahayana and Vajrayana, is Hindu influence coming back in. And you can see this as it develops along the way. 
And I'm sure the Buddha would go, that's not what I said uh, to some of the stuff that's come in. But it is quite fascinating. Uh, changing the subject slightly back to universal consciousness, of course, that comes in with the Yogacaran school, or perhaps I should say the slight misinterpretation of the original Yogacaran teachings. Uh, I think they weren't quite going there, but I haven't studied it enough to, to be able to say for sure. Anyhow, it did seem to come in. For the Buddha, he's very definitely, consciousness is a dependently originated phenomenon. It arises dependent on the senses involved. You know, there's a six sense consciousnesses. And he's very much limiting it to the mind-body process in relationship to its environment. The other thing to say about the universal consciousness, people have immortality projects. By that, I mean, they wanna figure out a way so that when they die, they don't really die. You know, there's some trick they can use to get out of it. And this colors so much of spirituality and religion and even science. Somebody trying to figure out a way to escape dying. And you get all sorts of stories. And yet what the Buddha is saying, I mean, he teaches the deathless, but what he's saying is, yeah, the trick is find there's nobody there to die. If, if I, th I think if you fully get dependent origination, if you fully get soda pie, and you see there's, there's just all these streams coming together and I call the intersection point me and of course I act which means more streams going out and that's all there is no entities to be found anywhere then there's nothing to die there's nothing that was born and I think that's where he's going rather than any immortality project of, okay, there's something that's gonna enable me to not really die when I die. He's like, nah, you're not even here in the first place. So of course you're not gonna die. You just have to realize that and be comfortable with it. And so the ultimate test of your comfortableness with something like that, how would you react if you found out, yeah, when you die, you're just completely gone. Are you gonna be the least bit upset? If you're the least bit upset, you still haven't resolved this, right? You're still looking for a way out of it. I'm going to somehow find a way out of it. I'm conceiving of a self who's somehow going to escape this. Because that's the self that the Buddha is talking about when he says not self, is that, that essence that's somehow going to make it to the next incarnation or however how you're, you're phrasing it, to heaven, to hell, to wherever. And so you got to be comfortable with, yeah, not, not coming back. It's all right. It's fine. And the best way to do that is not here in the first place. At least that's, that's my conclusion. And so the whole idea of a universal consciousness, I suspect, is people's immortality project still playing around. But that's just you know, my opinion. You know, it's really interesting that you say that. <laughs> because uh, so we go to science conferences and a lot of the conferences are in these areas that we're talking about. So we, we get this 
stuff rehashed over and over and over again, year after year after year, usually same players, you know, but we seem to be evolving. Something is growing in this process. It's worth it. Um, but Jay, I have to say, sometimes at these meetings, when some of our friends start um, <clears throat> uh, glorifying consciousness, uh, perhaps deifying it in some way, uh, you know, making it special. When I get that, they may not say those things, but you can tell when a person has that agenda or has some, you know, something along those lines. It's what Lee is talking about. You, you, you can smell it, uh, even if someone is not making these kinds of statements. And I was going to say that I sometimes get this impish uh, urge that I never act on because I don't like to create a mess just to create a mess. But the impish urge is to pop up and say with great confidence, don't you people get it? Consciousness is overrated. The Buddhist tradition just says there's Nama Rupa. There's consciousness and the other stuff. And neither of them are particularly appealing. Consciousness is overrated. But I'm afraid someone will quote me on that. And now, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, you're quoted now. <laughs> it's out there. If anyone, so Chelsea wanted some sort of blessing from me. Okay, I don't know. I, I can't give a blessing, but maybe I could give a curse. If anyone quotes this out of context, oh, you don't even want to hear about the karmic consequences. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, Jay? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I wasn't going to defend any of the uh, <laughs> um, panpsychist views of consciousness. I was just giving it out to see what uh, Lee and Shinzen's impression, and I think that was beautiful the way that they said it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. I think we're probably over time anyway. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, uh, well over time, but I infinitely worth it, I think. Just fabulous conversation. Uh, Lee, uh, seeing as you're the guest, do you have any uh, final uh, reflection or thought that you want to share anything that's uh, still on your mind to say uh, before we wrap it up? Yeah, um, I assume we can go for another couple hours while I finish responding to all the stuff that was in episode 103. You talked about 
hard jhanas and soft jhanas. Yeah, I'm sure we've got at least 20 minutes discussion of that. Uh, yeah, there's so much more I want to say. Uh, why do we have jhanas? I mean, why do jhanas exist? How come that's there? I don't think they had an evolutionary advantage. So why do they even exist? So there's tons more I can say. What I will say is this has been fantastic and I so deeply appreciate being invited to participate in this. I have totally loved every moment of it. So thank you very much. So the that obvious question, awesome. Lee, can we have you on another time as a follow-up? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, great. God, I would love it. If everyone's in, let's do the sequel. Oh, yeah. Gratitude to all of you. This was just absolutely exceptional. Absolutely exceptional. And I can't think of anything to say other than thank you very much. And I can't wait for the next one. My pleasure. <laughs> I haven't had this much fun since I was in the second genre. <laughs> Shenzhen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguetti, and special guest Lee Brasington. Thank you very much. Very good. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.